This episode deals with gruesome descriptions of violent crimes against children. If that's something that you struggle with hearing, then please listen to another episode of Murder and Mediumship, one of our many that is centered around adults. This crime takes place in 1955, so before getting to it, I'd like to start with a brief lesson in history. Up until 1919, 90% of people of color lived in the South. In 1900, only one-fifth of that population was living in urban areas. By 1960, that percentage went up to 50%, and by 1970, a whopping 80% of people of color were living in urban areas. I'm 32, and from what I can remember in high school, I don't recall learning about the Great Migration of people of color from the South moving North. This isn't to say that we didn't learn it. History definitely wasn't my favorite subject, but this could be because what we learned wasn't ever really nearly the full truth of what we should have been learning. Between 1916 and 1970, over 6 million people of color moved from rural South to Northern and Midwestern cities. Some historians break this down into two migrations, the first being pre-World War and the second being post-World Wars. Regardless, a much larger percentage of people migrated between 1940 and 1970 than in the first half of the migration. People were actively fleeing segregation, indentured servitude, convict leasing, racist ideology, widespread lynching, and the overall lack of social and economic opportunity. And before I keep going, because I wasn't sure exactly what this was, and I had to look it up myself, just to show you how intense and how scary it was to live in the South, especially in Mississippi, as a person of color, convict leasing, essentially when the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution was was passed, it prohibited the enslavement of any human being. It actually exempted, though, those convicted of crime from that net of safety. So what prison systems did was lease prisoners to railways and mines and large plantations. States created what was called black codes that made it all too easy to imprison people of color. So when you hear the prisoners were leased to do this work, perhaps you're thinking, maybe they made some money for it. They did not. The state profited. Maybe you're thinking, who cares? They did criminal things. They should be paying for it. And why shouldn't it take some of the burden from the state? Well, because the things that the Black Codes allowed specifically people of color to be arrested for, it was all absurd offenses like loitering, vagrancy, not carrying proof of employment, breaking curfew. And these were laws that were almost impossible not to break. So it was set up specifically to imprison them and then continue to pretty much enslave them. I mean, enslave them, really, without calling it slavery. So with people of color in the South being forced to uphold these ridiculous laws, the prison system began to become overrun with people of color. And it was the first time in history that they made up more of the prison population than than white people did. And it was those Americans who released out for state profit, not the white ones, not the white prisoners, which is basically slavery, just under a different name. So slavery wasn't over. And this is in the mid-1900s, okay? This is not circa 1865 or something like that, all right? So almost 100 years after the end of the Civil War and the freeing of the slaves, and we are still looking at 
people of color being enslaved. So because of World War II, factories were experiencing incredible shortages of workers. The industrialized North was offering plenty of incentive to encourage people of color to move up there. Many offered free relocation, low-cost housing, and I would bet that even just the promise of escaping the Jim Crow South was enough to make anyone want to leave. Which brings us to Mamie Till, the mother of our victim, Emmett Till. She was born in rural Mississippi, and her father moved to Argo, Illinois in the 1920s during the first Great Migration. He worked at Argo Corn Products Factory, and soon after moving north, his wife and two children, Mamie and her brother, joined him in Illinois. Her parents would eventually divorce, which led her to dive headfirst into her studies. And from what I can tell, her mom really encouraged her to do this as well. She very much supported her daughter educating herself as much as she possibly could. And she actually became the first person of color to make honor roll at Argo Community High School and the fourth to graduate in the predominantly European American high school. So she met and married Lewis Till, an amateur boxer and employee of the same Argo Corn Products factory that her father worked in. Lewis was known as a ladies' man around town, but had zeroed in on Mamie. Though her mother told her that Lewis was too sophisticated for her and encouraged her to break up with him, he was kind of relentless in the pursuit of her, and at 18, they got married. Less than a year into their marriage, she gave birth to Emmett Lewis Till, their first and only child together. And it wouldn't be long from then that she caught Lewis having an affair. His ladies' man style just couldn't be put out. So she kicked him out. A strong woman with conviction and pride in self, when he nearly choked her to death, she filed charges against him and had a restraining order put into place. When he refused to respect the court-appointed order, the judge gave him two options. He could go to prison, or he could enlist in the army. So in 1945, Lewis was overseas in Italy when he was hung with another soldier after being accused of raping and killing another woman. Emmett would grow up without his father. I'm your host, Catherine, psychic medium, self-worth coach, and true crime addict. Anything that you hear on this show will have source materials linked in the show notes, and my feelings on each case are based on intuitive hits and downloads. Everyone is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. And this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. To join Catherine Ann Intuitive Patreon, head to patreon.com slash Catherine Ann Intuitive and sign up for interviews with celebrities who have passed, exclusive access to weekly and monthly energy readings. And if you leave a review on iTunes in the month of October, you will be entered to win a free 30-minute reading, which is a $97 value. Thank you for helping to make the production of this show possible. Now, Mamie still had family in Mississippi, and in the summer of 1955, though she wanted him to go with her, Emmett convinced her to let him go visit his cousins down in Money, Mississippi. She was taking a vacation to visit relatives in Nebraska and wanted him to go with her. She explained to him that the South was not like what he was used to living in in Chicago's South Side and reminded him that he wouldn't be treated the same down there as he was treated in Chicago. From what I understand where he grew up, it was predominantly a community that was persons of color. It was not an area where there were a lot of white people. So I don't think his exposure to white people was very frequent from what I could tell. So I almost wonder if he didn't really understand or couldn't even quite grasp how serious this was. 
and I can only imagine the fear that she must have had in explaining this to her son. And at 14, we hear our parents, right? But we don't necessarily understand the gravity of their warnings. And Emmett had little interaction with anyone, with white people throughout his lifetime, even really. So I almost wonder if he just didn't get it. Um, Mamie prepared him the best that she could. And although she was nervous, she sent him by train with a cousin of his to visit her uncle Moses. So this is his great uncle and some cousins. Now he was a minister and a sharecropper and his aunt Elizabeth was also, like I said, they're hosting Emmett's 16 year old cousin from Chicago. So there were four kids in the house while they were there. And one afternoon they were all out and Emmett and his cousins and a couple of friends had gone into a shop owned by Roy and Carolyn Bryant, little grocery store. At the time, Roy was out of town driving a truck for one of his brothers, carting shrimp from New Orleans to San Antonio. From what I could tell, the shop wasn't something that made them a ton of money, and it was something that they were always looking to supplement their income. So Roy would go out of town every now and then, and when he would be out of town driving or doing some extra odd jobs, his wife, they typically stayed in the shop, in the back of the shop was where they lived. Um... I don't know why I'm stumbling over that. So they lived back there, but when he was out of town, she did not stay there. She stayed with um, another cousin, a brother, anyone who would be able to take care of them and help them out a little bit. And then there would always be someone to help her lock up so she wasn't alone. So at the time, he's out of town driving truck, and Emmett went in to buy a few pieces of bubblegum. While he was in there, according to Carolyn, Emmett, quote, put his hands on her and told her that he had been with white women before. She claimed that Emmett had grabbed her hand and asked her for a date, and when she broke free of him to run, he put his hands on her waist. His cousin ran into the store and grabbed Emmett by the arm to drag him from the store, and once they were outside, they saw Carolyn grab a pistol from her car, and the group of kids took off. While they were running, Emmett supposedly whistled at Carolyn. This entire thing was denied by his cousin later, insisting that Emmett had only been in the store for maybe a minute before the commotion, and it just wasn't possible that all of this had happened in such a short amount of time. And his mom would later say that he had developed a stutter after having polio at age five, and to kind of break himself of being stuck in the middle of that stammer, he would whistle. So he developed this whistle as like a coping mechanism to deal with his stutter, and it's very possible that while he was saying his bees, he was stuttering, as she also indicated that that was a problem letter for him, that he would get stuck on stammers with more often. And also, if he tends to stammer when he's nervous, maybe that whistling habit also carried over, and maybe he did whistle, but it wasn't at her. He wasn't catcalling her. And even if it was, what ends up happening to him absolutely wasn't warranted anyway. So. In connecting to what actually took place in the store, I believe that Emmett accidentally grazed her hand and that she jumped and screamed. Roy was out of town, so she was maybe a little bit more jumping than usual. I believe she has a flair for the dramatic anyway, and when she retold the story, she embellished it, looking for attention. She continued to tell the story and embellish what actually happened, and poor victim Carolyn. She didn't tell Roy what happened because one, didn't happen like that at all, and two, she knew he would kill Emmett. Without a doubt. I believe that she was afraid of Emmett, but not because of anything he did to make her feel as if she should be, only because he was black 
And when she ran to her car to get her gun, I think she did so out of fear. Again, not warranted fear, but she was showing them, hey, I'm protected. You can't come around here threatening me or anything like that. It was like a show of force. It was a dramatic show of force. The whole thing was grossly exaggerated when she recounted it over and over. And her reaction running out to grab the gun was grossly exaggerated. In a small town, though, word gets around. And it wasn't long after Roy got home that he heard of the alleged incident at his store while he was out of town. Just as Carolyn knew that he would, he was on a hunt for Emmett. He was questioning everyone who had come by the store. He actually, it was said that he found someone who he thought was the offending person. And he brought him to, I believe, the kid who was talking about it at the store. He brought this person to him and was like, is this the kid who was talking to my wife? And it was ruled out, no, this wasn't him. So he was told it's the boy that's staying with preacher Moses. So he learned that it was Emmett staying with Moses Wright, his nephew from Chicago. And between the hours of two and three 30 in the morning, four days after the incident at the store, Roy Bryant and his half brother, his giant Neanderthal of a man, half brother, J.W. Millam, drove up to Wright's home. They got out of the truck with a pistol and a flashlight and demanded to come in and, quote, find the boy. They entered a bedroom where four children were sleeping. One of them was Emmett Till, 14 years old, and it was said that he had the body of a full-grown man. So they were shining the light on him, and J.W. said, are you the one that did the talking? And when Emmett said that he was, they made him get dressed. One thing that came to me while connecting was how proud his mom was. She was a proud woman who knew her worth, and she knew the respect that she deserved. I mean, she put Emmett's father out for hurting her, something a lot of women in that time would have ignored and just dealt with. And when he broke that restraining order repeatedly, she essentially had him drafted. I mean, that takes a lot of strength. She instilled that self-respect into her son. And I feel that she raised him to know that respect was both given and then received. And Emmett had the belief in equality of all humans. No one was better than anyone else. And again, this is just what's coming to me, but this is what I believe he was raised to know. So when these two men told 14-year-old Emmett to get his shoes on, he made them wait while he put his socks on because he, quote, didn't wear shoes without socks. And I imagine that this only infuriated the two men even more than they were already infuriated. So Moses pleaded with the two that Emmett was only 14. His nephew was from up north. Just whip him, teach him his lesson, be done with it. And Elizabeth offered them money, anything to just leave Emmett alone. The two refused all offers though and took him out to the truck with them. Millam reportedly asked Moses, how old are you, preacher? to which Wright responded, 64. And Millam threatened that if Wright told anybody, he wouldn't leave to see 65, making sure that Moses was saying he didn't know who they were before they left. Before throwing him into the back of the truck, it is said that witnesses at Moses' place heard them ask a third person, is this the right one, when they heard a yes, before they threw him in the back of the truck and drove off. I very much believe that Carolyn was in that truck. I don't think she was there when the actual 
killing took place, but during the kidnapping, 100% believe she was in that truck. According to J.W. and Roy, the initial plan was to drive to a cliff in town and throw him off of it, but it was too dark to see to get to the cliff. And I don't know that I believe that that was the plan, or if it was just one of the ideas that was tossed around about how to mess them up. However, this isn't what happened, and they instead drove him to a barn where he could be heard crying and pleading as he was pistol-whipped, beaten, and tortured. According to the men, Emmett wouldn't say that they were better than him. They couldn't get him to say that he wasn't their equal, which resulted in the beating becoming more brutal and lasting longer. From the barn, they forced him back into the truck, beaten and bloodied and weak. They drove him to a cotton field where they knew there was a cotton gin fan that was being discarded. They made him lift the 70-pound fan, even though he was beaten, bloodied and weak, into the back of the truck. They then drove to a bridge over the Tallahatchie River, forced him to remove his clothes, and asked him if he still thought he was their equal. When he said that he was, they shot him once in the head, tied the fan to his neck with barbed wire, and tossed him into the river. Moses reported Emmett missing to the authorities, and in the coming days, the family and even a sheriff would go out looking for Emmett. Now, I have to wonder how seriously law enforcement took this report, because, I mean, law enforcement was typically part of the KKK, right? In that time, they were not likely looking their hardest or trying to bring justice to Emmett. I can't imagine that they were at this point or at any point during all of this. So they searched riverbanks, under bridges, and along the water. He would be found three days after his kidnapping by two boys fishing in the Tallahatchie River with the gin fan still tied around his neck. He was so bloated and disfigured that he was only able to be identified by a ring that he wore in his hand. This ring was his father Lewis's and was something his mom had just given back to him as it finally fit him without being too loose to fall off. So local law enforcement demanded that Till's family in Mississippi bury him by nightfall that day, but his mom would hear of his body being discovered and insisted that Emmett be sent to Chicago to her. Why would they want his body buried so quickly? Because that crime was so brutal he was so badly beaten and so disfigured. And you can find pictures of his face on the internet. You can find it. And and it's horrifying that this poor mother... Anyway. The casket was sealed shut and ordered not to be opened. But unwilling to heed this order, upon arrival, Mimi demanded that the casket be opened and that if no one would do it for her, she would find a crowbar and do it herself. So begrudgingly, the casket was opened and in her horror, and this is what I was trying to say, she had to look at the face of her baby and see him in a way that was so difficult to one, see any human being, but two, hardly even be able to identify him, but knowing that that's her son, she declared that he would have an open casket funeral so that the world could see what had been done to her baby. And people turned out in the thousands for this funeral. 
They came from all over for Emmett's funeral. And although it may not have been realized in that moment, her outspoken and unfiltered grief over the murder of her child, the senseless and brutal, torturous murder of her child, that it would help to spark the civil rights movement in a way that could never have been imagined. Meanwhile, back in Money, Mississippi, Sheriff Strider told local press that this, this murder would be investigated. However, as the case gained national attention, he would change his tune. He blamed the Northerners and during a press conference actually said, quote, we never have any trouble until some of our Southern N-words go up North and the NAACP talks to them and they come back home. If they would keep their nose and mouths out of our business, we would be able to do more when enforcing the laws of Tallahatchie County in Mississippi. This sheriff went so far as to refuse to not only let African-American journalists into the courthouse with the white journalists, but he refused to let in African-American congressman Charles Diggs. He refused to believe that there was a, quote, N-word congressman. 1955, guys, 1955. This is not hundreds of years ago. This isn't immediately following the, quote, end of slavery. This is 1955. The farther you go into this case, the more twisted and sickening it becomes. He testified for the defense, which is supposed to be shocking, but I feel like it's a little obvious. He even claimed that Emmett Till was in Detroit, alive and well, living with Mamie's dad, and that this was just a stunt being pulled by the black community. As for the dead body pulled from the river, how do we explain that? Well, that was a full-grown man, and his body was so decomposed you couldn't even tell if he was black or white. That's what the sheriff said. The trial itself, if you can call it that, lasted for five days. The jury was made up of 12 white men. You had to be able to vote to serve on the jury, and many people of color were unable to get registered to vote because lives were threatened when you tried to register to vote. One of the wives of Roy and JW, I believe it was Roy's wife, brought her children to trial where they played at the defense table coloring and drinking Coca-Colas. Okay? Their father is on trial for murder, and they're playing games and drinking Cokes because no one was taking it seriously. So Roy and J.W. testified that they released Emmett that evening after giving him a scare, and they had no idea who killed him. Again, if that even really was Emmett being pulled from the river, because he could be up in Detroit, right? So <clears throat> please read my sarcasm there. And one really cool thing did happen at this trial, and this is when Moses Wright was asked if the man who took Emmett was present in the courtroom, and the same man who was told, if you want to live to see 65, then you don't know who we are, you forget we were here, basically, Moses Wright stood up and pointed to J.W. Millam when he was asked that question. He was a man of color and a court of law in the South pointing to a white defendant accused of killing his great nephew, his great nephew, and he lived to tell about it. This is the first time this happened in the South. And he would eventually move to Chicago for his own safety. He sent his wife up ahead to make sure that she was safe during the trial. But still, despite all of this evidence, despite Moses being able to identify him, despite everyone knowing what happened, Bryant and Millam had too much working in their favor. 
They had an outstanding amount of support from white attorneys in the surrounding area and in the state of Mississippi as a whole. They were white and they were judged by a jury of their white peers. Additionally, Sheriff Strider, upon finding out that there were two people of color who could testify for the prosecution, Strider had them jailed so that they couldn't. It was, it's sad that there were two other people who were involved, but that it couldn't be proved. So I, I believe that those were the two people who were jailed, but I, I can't be positive there because it was a little difficult to navigate around that. But I am telling you, I haven't watched any of the movies around this either, but I really, I, I do plan to. It just, I need a minute to kind of decompress because this case was so difficult to feel into and to research, but I feel like it's so necessary that we know this part of our history. The jury deliberation lasted just over one hour for such a serious case, and they were told to make it take longer just to make sure that it looked like they were taking it seriously. They were actually told that by the judge, and this hour included kind of putzing around drinking sodas and, and laughing with each other. And like the rest of the trial, it was just a mockery of a deliberation. Carolyn's testimony wasn't even heard by the jury because the judge excused the jury during her testimony. The judge didn't think it was appropriate to force her to be so uncomfortable in front of so many people. Roy and J.W. were found innocent. If you didn't see that coming or already know, they got away with torture and murder, and the outcome of the case sparked outrage and lit more than just Mamie on fire. Moses and his family moved up to Chicago for safety after the trial, and Mamie went back too. Many of the witnesses who testified were helped by Dr. T.R.M. Howard, a physician and civil rights activist in Mississippi. He actually had his own armed bodyguards because what he was doing was so dangerous. He helped them to slip out of town unnoticed to ensure their safety. And the brutal slaying of Emmett Till came actually after a succession of other killings. So this is almost like the straw that broke the camel's back. Only months before Emmett was killed, two African-American activists in Mississippi were killed while trying to vote. Reverend George Lee was shot and killed while driving, I believe after voting. And in Brookhaven, Mississippi, Lamar Smith was killed in broad daylight in front of witnesses after voting. No one was arrested for any of these murders. I feel like that needs to be said again. No one was arrested for any of these murders. Emmett Till's death sparked more involvement from the NAACP than ever before. After the trial, JW and Roy actually came out and confessed to killing Emmett because they knew that they couldn't be tried for it again. All of this sounds familiar though, right? When we don't learn our history, when we don't heal our history and correct our behavior and our vision, then history repeats itself. In 2013, we saw Kendrick Johnson killed without repercussion, though it is thought to be known who is responsible for his death. And that was a case that murder and mediumship covered, so if it doesn't sound familiar to you, hop back a couple of episodes and listen to that one. We saw George Floyd in 2020 laying on the ground with a police officer crushing his windpipe while Floyd expressed that he couldn't breathe 27 times before dying. We watched as Breonna Taylor was shot in her bed in the middle of the night by plainclothes police officers, and now Fantability shot and killed in her family's vehicle in a Philadelphia suburb while leaving her brother's baseball game. In the suburbs. In the freaking suburbs. When does this stop? By the way, 
and this is going to crush you. Six decades later, Carolyn Bryant confessed during an interview that Till had never made a pass at her at all. She had made up the whole thing. Emmett Till was brutally murdered because of this woman's completely false allegations, knowing that allegations like that in Mississippi could and likely would get someone killed. And no justice has been served. She received no punishment for making false allegations like this. She received no punishment for basically inciting the anarchy that led to his death. None. And why, I I can't understand how she wouldn't be punished for this. She is still alive today. I can't imagine that she made any apology to the family in any way, but I truthfully, truthfully feel that some things are just unforgivable in this lifetime, and what she did absolutely destroyed so very many people. And she took a young boy's life with a simple lie. Her selfishness and her desire to be heard and seen when she felt like she was left by her husband all alone to run the store and she had to create some drama, got someone killed. And the way that she had no value for another human's life, it just makes me so sick. This entire case is something that I feel that we as Americans should know and understand on a much greater level and a much broader, whatever I'm trying to say, a lot more people should know about this in, in great detail and they don't. And if this was difficult to listen to, well, good. It, it should be because this kind of thing shouldn't still be happening in 2021, but such similar things are still happening. So thank you for listening to a little bit different of a case than what we normally have, as we all know who did this and we all know why they did it. And all that I was here to feel into was what actually did he do that would have even made her think about doing this? And that was literally, he accidentally touched her hand and she, in sheer drama, just created a web of lies that led to his death. And truthfully, I can think of no stronger woman and no braver soul than Emmett's mother. It is our job to make sure that things like this never happen again. Thank you for listening to Murder and Mediumship.